This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, performed by, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence, in a tiny little room in Brooklyn during a pandemic. Um, And guys, we are like three episodes from the end now. I think after this, there's only two more episodes, and that's it. We will have wrapped up Maxine's journey. Thank you guys for hanging with this. Um, And I hope that I nail the ending. I hope I don't like, I hope this isn't like a big lost moment for everybody. Uh, Let's find out together, shall we? Um, So here we are. Uh, Maxine and the Planets Unknown, episode 22, chapters 49, 50, 51, and 52. Chapter 49. As they entered the passage the luminescent worm seemed to be guiding them to, Sumner thought, well, this is almost certainly a trap. But, trap or no, there was little else to go on. The ship had seemed totally inaccessible. The bottommost part of it was still well out of reach of a person standing on the ground. Also, he saw nothing that looked like an entry point anyway. It had an organic curvature to the outside hull, and while you definitely got an impression of something archaic, fossilized, and long dead, it was remarkably intact. The places on the outside that had been opened to the elements exposed an inner frame of a honeycomb-like design. Those places were also too far from the floor for Maxine to have reached. So, the alien ship was out. The other passages out of the chamber also seemed unlikely. They were not just going to do as they were told, mind you. The force behind all of this had yet to do anything that did not fall under the category of attempted murder. From trying to bludgeon him with rock-hard insects, to trying to drown him, to trying to blow up Laurent, even the vicious field mice might have done the job given enough time and numbers. He tried not to look too directly at the fact that if the sealant hadn't been enough to keep all of his innards and fluids where they belong, then it was reasonable to think that the armored ape might have actually accomplished the job, and that Sumner just hadn't had the good grace to lie down and close his eyes yet. Sumner did not want to die. There were few times in a person's life when you had to look at that quite so directly, but there it was. Certainly, if that was what was coming for him, well, it came for everyone, and he would face it with his spine intact. But it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted to find Maxine and haul her butt back to the Contiki and hope the two of them and Sandoval could find some kind of solution to what was happening to their people. He wanted to He wanted to see the town grow and thrive, and he wanted to do his part to make that happen. He had notions in his head of the little community they had forged on the ship duplicating itself on the green skin of this world. He knew that there was, historically, almost always, a baby boom generation after every colonial landing. He imagined walking the streets of this town a sky above his head, dodging happy, free-range kids 
who had literally been born from their parents' spirit of hope and possibility. He could hear their laughter and the slap of their sneakers on the streets. There was, in a box, in the closet in his quarters back on the ship, a wide-brimmed sheriff's hat. It had been handed down to him from a bidway who never wore it. Sumner had also never worn it, not outside of his quarters anyway. Wearing a hat in an entirely controlled environment where all of the light is electric seemed like a bit too much of an affectation for either man's taste. But, in his imaginings of life under the sun of this new world, he wore that hat as he made his rounds. Maybe he'd even settle down with someone after things felt like they were on course. Maybe he and Sandoval would give it another shot. Maybe. These were the things that he wanted for himself. The intensity of these desires paled next to what he wanted for Maxine. He knew she was a long way from connected to the people around her. He knew she carried a great burden and that maybe he had been ill-equipped to help her with it. But sometimes he thought maybe that was just a matter of space. That maybe if she felt like she had a little more room to go off when she needed to, to have somewhere to keep that part of herself to herself, then maybe she would be able to share whatever was left over with someone. More than once, he had thought that he had been totally the wrong person to take Maxine in. He was so solitary, so work-focused himself. He wondered if her healing from the tragedy had come out warped in some way because of that, like a bone set into a misshapen cast. He was the cast in this scenario. When she had stopped crying all the time, he had thought that she was feeling better, moving on. But maybe she had just realized that he was a terrible shoulder to cry on. Maybe she had pulled into herself because of him. There was a spark in that kid that he was terrified no one else got to really see. And that he had only seen it because you can't keep something so bright and beautiful hidden all the time, no matter how hard she might try. He knew it was there. He knew she was smart and imaginative. He knew that she had been a bright child and that the hardship had deepened her. He saw the way she watched people. He saw the, the sympathy, the compassion, the insight that played over her face as she watched them. He knew that she had not been irretrievably embittered by her loss, that there was still curiosity and empathy in her. He knew that if she ever opened those floodgates, it would dazzle everyone around her. If someone told him Maxine would know joy and love and the freedom to express those things and that all she lost would be restored if he just laid down and died right then and there, by God, he'd do it. But that was not what was being asked. Apparently, it was just the opposite. It was stand up and keep going, even if you were going into what was almost certainly a trap. The fact was, he and Laurent had not just followed the light-up worms blindly into the gaping maw of this corridor. They had made a thorough scouting of the rest of the chamber. There was only one other even remote possibility, 
only one other path that seemed human size and close enough to the ground that someone who had never climbed anything in their life could get to it. They had started to weigh this option in the sort of, well, if it wants us to go there, we should definitely go here kind of way, and that line of reasoning had almost held. But then, they saw the sneaker tracks. There was a moat of loose dust around one side of the chamber. Things turned rocky and gravelly as you got closer to the mouths of the passages. They might not have even seen the sneaker prints, but for the fact that Laurent had dropped her glow stick. When she bent to pick it up, she saw the imprints in the silt. There was no way to be absolutely certain there had not been any kind of course change, but from the trajectory of those tracks, Maxine had headed into this tunnel, the one that was all lit up by the luminescent slugs. Well, I guess it's into the death hole for us, Laurent had said. Ever since her rage explosion with the monster back at the mouth of the cave, a dark little sense of black humor had started to come to the surface of the good lieutenant. Sumner thought it was amazing what killing something with a big rock would do for some people. Chapter 50 Maxine woke up back in the cave, or... Her body woke up. What she had been through was nothing like sleep, and she had the exhaustion to prove it. She sat up stiffly. There was light, bioluminescent worms lined the farthest walls. There were small crystal outcroppings and large fungal colonies. Nothing moved. She stared around the cave, her eyes adjusting to the silvery light and the shadows that deepened the crevices and corners into a midnight blue. She could feel her mind clicking back together. The whole of the past day's experiences were kept at a bit of a remove. Maxine had become, in her years as an orphan and renowned survivor of tragedy, extremely adept at managing the flow of unwanted thoughts, or thoughts too big to deal with all at once. But she felt like there was more to this. Something had happened to her due to her interactions with this place. Mr. Humphreys was not there. She understood enough of what she was dealing with now that she knew that didn't mean that he or it, the thing behind the badger, was not truly there, but she could sense that it was giving her space. She had this feeling that it was deliberately looking away, the way you do when you are trying to let someone do something Embarrassing, but unavoidable. Like cry. And then she did. She cried for everything she had lost and everything that would be lost. She cried because she didn't want to die. And because even now, there were things she still thought she could be. She had held the idea at bay for so long. It had felt like a betrayal of her family to want to be happy or to want to have a future. It had taken her so long to want to be something again, to want to have a life, to have hopes and dreams. She had just begun to entertain the notion that there might be something for her after all. But the living, the living have to dream. 
It is what they do, and no matter how long you put it off, you will return to the dreaming. It had been such a foreign sensation that she hadn't even known where to start, and now she didn't know if she was crying because she had started to come back to the world too late, or that coming back at all had proven to be so futile. She wept for all of this with total abandon. She curled on the floor of the cave, hand in her face, body spasming with the force of her sobs. When she could no longer cry for herself, she cried for everyone on the Contiki, for all that they had thought awaited them here, for the lives and families and generations they had planned. Just as she cried for her dreams, she cried for their dreams, which almost certainly were more fully imagined than her own. There was some anger then, but it didn't last. She found it impossible to hold on to when there was no clear target. What was she going to do? Punch the planet? Scream expletives at her imaginary friend? She tried both, and it just turned her rage into embarrassment pretty quickly. There was some bargaining after that. Bad bargains she didn't believe in, even as she shouted them into the quarter light of the cave's corners. Finally, she just sat down. Legs crossed, hands in her lap, and stared into the darkness. There was nowhere to go. There was no safe place anywhere in the universe. She was suddenly keenly aware of how fragile they had always been. Soft little sparks of life flung out into the void, always a hair's width from death. She'd always thought she understood this better than anyone else in the ship could. But relearning it, as a near adult, gave it added dimension. She saw now how tragedy became a pose, an accessory, an easy habit after the wounds had been scars long enough to be more color than texture. He had learned to live with something, but after that, you learn to live with the ways you learn to live with it. You seek a new normal after the old normal was disrupted. And no matter how much you might declare otherwise, you go back to putting the same naive faith in the new normal that you had foolishly invested in the one that you lost forever. You just can't help it. Now that all normalcy was on the chopping block, Maxine realized the flaws in how she had been coping. She knew that, taken back to the start, she would have done it the same way. There was a logic to how she had dealt with things. But she now saw how fast she had been approaching a point when she would have been forced to do something differently. And she couldn't help but wonder what that would have looked like, now that she was never going to get the chance. She didn't even know where she was or how to get out of this cave system, having spent half the journey into it in a blacked-out fugue state. She would never see any of the people on the Contiki she would never see Sumner nor Sandoval, nor the few kids she was friendly with ever again. Worse, she would never get to thank Sumner for all he had done and all that he had tried to do for her. She felt a wave of guilt come over her that they were going to die far away from one another and he would never know that she knew what a good and loving father figure he had tried to be. If any one result of the distance she'd kept for all these years 
could be the highest in price. It had to be that. But one good thing about having no options is that it makes it a little easier to make peace with your situation. She was starting to get a hold of her anger and fear and her disappointment, the 15-year-old voice inside her that said, It's not fair! Those things were getting quieter now. She was calming down. She felt a stillness come over her, and that was good. And that was also why it seemed to be in such particularly bad taste when Sumner showed up. Chapter 51 Sumner did not feel right. His insides felt loose, like they were floating. He felt like he was at risk of spilling out of himself, like at any moment he would just slide out of the leather case that was his skin and he'd just be a puddle on the floor. He was pretty sure he didn't look great either. The last couple of times that Laurent looked his direction, she had been forced to make a great effort to disguise a look of concern, if not outright alarm. All of this could just be the fatigue and blood loss catching up with the speed she'd injected him with, but he didn't think so. He thought this was bad, and that he wouldn't live too long past worse. For the moment, though, he was on his feet and he was moving along just fine. Whether that was strength of body or strength of will was anybody's guess, as was how long it would last. But he was close. He couldn't have said how he knew it, but he did. Maxine was not that far away, and as long as his faith held out that she was somewhere that he could reach her, he would not lay down and die. If he'd asked Laurent her opinion, she might have said he looked like he already had. She had insisted on taking the lead, figuring that any threat that might need to be dealt with by someone with all of their blood and organs in place was more likely ahead of them than behind them. Not that there might not be a swarm of those armadillo apes hot on their trail right then. It was more or less a best guess. Also, being on point made sense to her. It was a task she understood and that took her focus away from what this insane day had already cost her. Better to be out here taking things in and assessing threats, not that she'd seen anything besides the glowing worms. They had come to a few forks at this point, and inevitably the glowing worms would be lighting one direction and not the other, so she and the sheriff had stuck to the plan of following the slugs but she wondered what they would do if they came to a break where two passages had worms, or three or four did. Would that put the lie to their whole theory of the case? Would that mean they'd just been following dumb animals whose whole motivation for choosing the paths they had would have nothing to do with the two of them at all? That'd be a kick in the shins, as well as the more rational explanation. Then, she heard something. It sounded like someone cursing loudly. She was just turning to see if Sumner had heard it too, but he was already brushing past her. Wait, damn it! 
Laurent watched Sumner race ahead and thought to herself, that guy sure moves quick for someone that close to never moving again. Chapter 52 When Sumner came tumbling out of the cave passage in the low white light of the glowing worms, Maxine's first thought was that it was the height of manipulation for Mr. Humphreys to make her see him, the person she was feeling the most guilty about. Did he expect her to go through the whole, I love you and I'm so sorry with his stupid hallucination? And for what? His entertainment? Certainly it was not for her peace of mind. Then Sumner spoke. Maxine? Maxine! And the way he said her name, the mix of relief and pain in it, she knew even before he lurched into motion that it was actually him. He crossed the distance between them, and he had her in his arms. He was squeezing her tight to his chest and had his face pressed against the crown of her head, and he just kept saying her name, Maxine, Maxine, over and over again. She herself had burst into tears at some point after his arms had closed around her. Then his grip went slack, and he staggered just a half step back and dropped to his knees, almost taking her with him to the floor of the cave. Then she saw him. He'd been a silhouette and then a blur and then a wall of skin she had been pressed into. Now, though, she got a good look at him. He was shirtless and naked from the waist up, but for the parts of him that were wrapped in some kind of stained rags. His arms and his abdomen were shot through with some kind of white foam that had dark streaks in it, he was covered in dark spots, some of which looked swollen, some of which looked blotchy like blood. He was covered in blood. When he looked up at her, his face was drawn and his eyes were dark. Oh my God, Sumner, what happened to you? Before Sumner could speak, another voice came from the direction of the passage. A lot has happened to him. Maxine looked up and saw a tall, straight-backed woman. Most of her was a vague shape, but the parts of her face that reflected the light from the worms seemed stony and a bit cold. Who? I'm Laurent. I've been, I've been helping out your dad, helping him look for you. Sumner reached up and grabbed Maxine's wrist. It was a weak grip. I'm so glad I found you, Button. She bent down and wrapped her arms around him. Oh, Daddy, it was the first time she'd ever called him that. She felt his body give a small quiver, and when she looked at his face, there were tears in his eyes. Laurent had made it over to them by that point. I don't want to spoil this, but I think we're under a time pressure here. Right, said Sumner. Then he turned to Maxine. we got to get you back to the ship. Sandoval, she thinks there's... Something we could maybe figure out from your blood? He shook his head as if trying to clear it. Took a deep breath. Sweetheart, oh, look, everyone on the Contiki is in trouble. I know, Maxine said. How do you know? Going back to the ship won't change anything. But if that is where you would like to end this, I can clear the way. Maxine turned her head to find that Mr. Humphreys was standing a few feet away from them. Did you do this? 
Did you bring them here? Sumner and Laurent both seemed caught off guard. They came seeking you on their own, but in the end, I did give them a little bit of help. Sumner asked, Who are you speaking to, Maxine? Maxine turned to him. The reason I know what is happening back on the Contiki is because I've been... I've been talking to... She turned to the badger now. What do I say you are? I know you're not Mr. Humphreys. I am... Everything. I am this world. I am, I am, if it pleases you, Oxalus. Maxine turned back to Sumner. I have been communicating with Oxalus, with the planet. What? Oh, no, sweetie. There's something wrong with this place. It messes with your mind. Yes, what's wrong with it is that it's alive, Daddy. The whole planet is alive. Messing with your mind is just one of the many things it can do. And it doesn't want us here. It doesn't want us messing it up, which we would. Laurent raised an eyebrow at that in a kind of can't-argue-with-that expression. Sumner got Maxine's attention again. You're saying that the, the planet's been talking to you? It's, it's talking to you now. I don't really know how it works, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't want us here, and and it's going to kill us. Sumner started to protest, but then realized that he was only doing so because he felt like he needed to be the adult. But Maxine was different. He could see that something had happened here, and he knew she was right. But he could not give up that easily, not with her life at stake. Maxine... There's still stuff we can try. Sandoval, she has ideas. And that was when Maxine made the same leap that Sumner had. She was different. She could see how all of this went, and she knew it was a waste of time. Humans tried. It was what they did. They could not help themselves. But she was, mentally, emotionally, experientially, more than human now. She saw themselves playing out all the scenarios, raging against the inevitable, spending their last few moments of love and togetherness in a desperate search for some kind of escape that was never going to manifest. She wanted to share more with him in these last moments than just their fear and their desperation. But because they were human, that was exactly what they were going to do. Then Mr. Humphrey spoke up. Mish Maxine. I wanted to know if there was anything that you would like to request of me before we finish this. Maxine turned toward him and cocked her head. Did you just ask me if I had any last requests? Sumner and Laurent looked at one another. Mr. Humphreys seemed unsure of her tone. All that human knowledge you banked, and you still don't know what a cliché is? Forget it. I... Then... It struck her. Wait, wait. You've told me a lot of stories today. Shown them to me, or had me live them, whatever. Can you make it so I can do that? So that I can have you live something that I want you to live? Mr. Humphreys looked like he was doing a math problem for a minute. I, I don't see why not. 
Okay, that is what I want. I want, I want to show you something and them. I want all of us to live something together, something from, from my life. Can you do that? Suddenly, all around the cave, small chambers opened up on the giant mushrooms that surrounded the room, and a jet of powder sugar fine spores poured out of each one, filling the room completely. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.